0: A couple of years ago, I was talking with someone after services, and I heard a voice come over the speaker. And as they were running an audio check to see how a recording had come out, and as I listened to the voice, I was trying to quickly think of who is that that's talking. And then it dawned on me I I was hearing my voice. You know, there, there is and can be sometimes a great difference between the way we perceive ourselves and the way others see us, or in that case, hear us. There is a difference, and it's something that we do need to be aware of. Some get bogged down and overly concerned about the way others perceive them. And yet, the one that we need to be most concerned about, most focused on, is the way that God sees us. So this afternoon, I would like for us to consider how it is that God does see us and the effect that that should have on the way we see ourselves and the way we see others. Let's begin by turning back to First Samuel chapter 16. We will turn here and read a, a very familiar passage that describes the way God looks at us, the way God sees us. God describes the way he sees us in as in contrast to the way we oftentimes see. This is the, the, we're going to break into the story here where Samuel had been told to go and anoint a new king over Israel, and Jesse had been, brought his sons there to appear before Samuel, knowing one of those was due for this great and special honor. And as Samuel's, or Jesse's firstborn was brought before Samuel, Samuel immediately thought, okay, this. Is the Lord's anointed. And God responds to Samuel in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God paints this contrast here for us. Contrast between the way we look at others and the way He looks on us. God, when He looks at us, is not distracted by the exterior. We read elsewhere that God is not a respecter of persons. And yet that's something that we have to work very hard to overcome. Because the tendency is that we get distracted by what's on the outside, by the exterior. And so God lets Samuel know that there is a difference. When God looks at us, He's looking at what is on the inside. Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to notice something connected with that. Hebrews chapter 2. As God had been, was looking for someone to replace Saul, to lead his people, he saw the qualities in David that he was looking for as someone to lead his people, to serve his people. God, as he looks on us, we'll notice here in Hebrews chapter 2, What God is doing. We're going to notice here in verse uh, 6. But one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. We are in the process of being brought to glory. God is working out a purpose, not only on this earth, but also in the lives of each and every one of us. That He has a purpose. That He is bringing sons to glory. And that is certainly a wonderful future that we do look forward to. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. That is something that is in process. In Hebrews 12, we'll pick up on that Aspect of this being in process. In Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 6. We read that for whom the Lord loves. He chastens. And scourges every son whom he receives. This verse here. Reminds me of a story that happened recently. Someone was watching. Uh, both of our girls and my wife and I went out on a a date and had an enjoyable evening and we came back home and the girls were tucked in bed and so we were talking with the uh, the people who had watched them and asking them uh, how were they, did did they behave and they said yes they they did well that uh, one of the girls had had gotten after the little one uh, a little bit much and so she had been corrected and, and was told to don't do that, that's bad and the My daughter responded, yes, but the Lord loves me even when I'm bad. (laughs) So we all had a a smile and a chuckle. Um, And then the next morning, I I got to introduce then the other half of that concept. (laughs) That the Lord chastens every child that He loves. You know, we, we are in that process. And God certainly does that with us. Down in, in verse 10, talking about the contrast between the way that our, our physical parents uh, correct us and the way our, our Heavenly Father corrects us. Verse 10, For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but He for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. God is working out a purpose, He is in the process of bringing many sons to glory. And certainly, we've all felt this chastening. And we can be thankful that He does chasten us because He does so with love for our benefit. We look forward to the fulfillment, the completion of the purpose that God is working out in our lives. When God looks at us, He sees our flaws, certainly. But He sees our potential. That we have the potential that He has instilled within us. The potential to be members of His family. We look forward to that time. And yet, you know, as we look forward to that time when we will dwell together in complete unity for all eternity. Certainly a wonderful thing to meditate on. And yet we realize we're not ready for that yet. There there are some rough edges that need to be knocked off. And he's working on that. He sees our flaws. And he, in his time and in his way, brings attention. Brings our attention to those. So that those can be eliminated. For sports teams... There are talent scouts that go around and watch the high school ball players. They're looking for players that have potential, that with the right training, with the right resources, can go on to do and accomplish great things. A gem cutter, when they're looking at rough stones looks past what's on the outside to see really what is on the inside, to see the potential that if the flaws are removed and if they're cut this way and polished this way, that there's really something glorious that can emerge. And our Father in heaven, as He looks upon us, sees within us that same potential. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see a description of whom God is calling at this time. This is a, a description that we're all familiar with, and we should remind ourselves from time to time, because as we review it and think about it, and realize that this applies to me, it is something that is humbling as well. In First Corinthians chapter one and verse 26, "For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise." And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in His presence. We see not only who God has selected, who He is working with, at this time, but we see the reason for that. It's important that we see that very clearly, that we remind ourselves of that, because as we remind ourselves of that, it helps us keep from being puffed up. You see, there is a purpose that God is accomplishing. He has called the weak, but He didn't call them to remain weak. He called the, the the foolish, but he didn't call them to remain foolish. He called them to accomplish something that he is working out, and that by using the tools, the instruments that he has chosen, the glory would clearly have to go to God, because it would be so obvious to any that look that you know, except for God's. Involvement in work. There's no way that this could have happened in any other way. It had to be by God's hand. That's something that we should see in our own lives. It helps us return the credit, the glory, for whatever He uses us to do to Him where it belongs. Let's turn on over to Genesis chapter 20. There is a, a contrast between the way God looks on us and the way we look on those around. And it is very important that we think about that contrast because it does change the way we relate to others, as we recognize it. You see, it's easy for us to assume certain things, make certain assumptions, to overestimate exactly what it is that we see. We read earlier that God sees the heart. And yet it's too easy for us to make certain assumptions about exactly what it is that we do see. There's an example here that is, I think, particularly interesting. And that is the example of Abraham and Abimelech. Now, after Abraham had been called by God to leave the area of of, uh, where he was and to go out to the place that God would show him. And so Abraham wandered around, and as he came to Gerar, he told the story that his wife was really his sister. And evidently she was a stunning woman to look at. And so the king took her. We see that in in verses 1 and 2. And then God comes to Abimelech in a dream. And God tells Abimelech that... He needs to restore Abraham, his wife. And Abimelech proclaims his innocency. And God acknowledges that. God says, yes, I, I know that you did not know. But I'm warning you. You are a dead man. You had better restore this man his wife. And if you don't, you and all that are yours will be dead. Now, when Abimelech awoke in the morning, he was a man on a mission. (laughs) So he called everyone together and he explained to the people there of his house what God had told him. And he called Abraham before him. Let's notice this in verse 9. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, "What have I done? What have you done to us? Have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done." And Abimelech said to Abraham, "What did you have in view when you have done this thing?" Notice Abraham's response. Verse 11, Abraham said, Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, they will kill me on the account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. what, What does Abraham do when he is asked for an account? He comes up with this sorry excuse. I didn't really tell a lie. See, technically what I told you was, was there was an element of truth. And not only that, well, when I came here, I thought, boy, this group of people, surely they're not going to respect God's Word. I, I'd better protect myself in this way. You see that verse thirteen shows that Abraham had a character flaw. This wasn't a one-time mistake that he made. this was a pattern in his life. Now God was very aware of this flaw that Abraham had, and yet God had told Abimelech he is a prophet. Restore his wife and he will pray for you. Notice the contrast between the way Abimelech must have have had every reason, physically speaking, to look at Abraham. And yet, God certainly saw the same thing Abimelech must have seen. The mistake that he had made. The fact that even when he was called to account for it, he he didn't really take ownership of his mistake. He didn't say, I'm really sorry. I was scared. And I'm sorry. Abraham didn't do that. We can... Put ourselves in Abimelech's situation and imagine how Abraham must have appeared. And yet there was something that may have been easy to overlook had God not spelled it out so clearly for Abimelech. He is my servant. He is a prophet. I am working with him and through him. And God was. And God later went on to help Abraham overcome that mistake, that flaw, that weakness, and go on to become the father of the faithful. And certainly we're thankful for Abraham's obedience. We owe so many of the blessings that we give thanks to God for, to the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. You see, there can be and often is a great difference between the way we may perceive others and the way God perceives them. In Acts chapter 9, the beginning of the chapter opens up with Saul. Verse 1, still breathing threatenings and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here is Saul out doing his utmost. Saul was a very zealous man. And he was doing his utmost to destroy, to stamp out the New Testament church. And as he is on this journey to go and stamp it out at Damascus, God gets his attention. And in verse 10, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And this is almost humorous. You know, we think about what's happening here, God is talking directly to Ananias. And Ananias is, in essence, saying, God, perhaps I know something you don't. <laughs> I've heard from a bunch of people. In the mouth of two or three witnesses. You know, I've heard about this guy. Are, are you sure? Maybe we shouldn't heal this one. (laughs) You know, he is a bad man. He has done terrible things. In fact, the reason he's here is to do terrible things. You know, even when God is talking to Ananias, Ananias still had his reservations. It was hard for him to grasp the picture and see things the way God saw them. God had to tell Ananias that I'm aware of all that. And he is a chosen vessel to me. I have chosen him to accomplish my purpose. And he is going to carry out my will. Saul was someone who certainly came with a great deal of baggage. And yet, you know, God is not a respecter of persons. He was able to see past. And he saw in Saul something that he was going to use to do great things. We can read on in the chapter and see. How difficult it was for the others, the New Testament church, to accept the new Saul. They, they still wanted to hold against him initially, his past. Verse 19: when he had received food and was strengthened, this is after Ananias had had healed him. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is not this he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And he has come here for the purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? They, they were amazed. We've heard about this guy. And yet we read in verse 22 that he continued to preach. He continued to grow in strength. And finally, there was a plot for his life there. And Saul escaped. They lowered him down in a basket. Over the wall. They were watching the gates for him. And so Saul slipped away. But even then, when he came to Jerusalem and and would have joined himself there to the church at that time, no, they didn't want to have anything to do with him initially. There was this resistance to let go of the mistakes that he had previously made, and accept what God was doing in his life. Let's turn to Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, We're going to notice the parable here of the prodigal son. In verse 11 of Luke chapter 15, Christ began this parable. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portions of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country. And there wasted his possessions with riotous living, wasteful living. Now, you know, there's a lot that's not said there in verse 12. You know, as we read over it, we read about the younger son asking his dad, Dad, I want my share of the inheritance. And so his dad divides it between his sons, and there he goes. Now think for a moment about what the father must have said to his son. You know, there's only one reason that the younger son would ask for his half now. And the father would certainly see that. The father would have cautioned his son and tried to talk some sense into him. To help them to understand that you are about to make a terrible mistake. Don't do that. Be patient. I can tell you that if you follow and if you persist on this course, I can tell you how it will end. It won't end the way you think. You will be sorry. You know, the father, a father who loves his son, would have warned his son. And yet, you know, as is often the case, the son was not yet full of maturity and persisted. And so his dad, okay, as you wish, if you must, here's your half. And then the son goes and does exactly what his dad must have warned him would follow. We're told in verse 13 that he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Verse 14, but when he had spent all, notice he didn't wisely invest it and it it didn't multiply for him, it dissipated. I'm sure that he had a very different... Expectation. Verse 14, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to eat and spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. You know, at some point, the son hit rock bottom. At some point, he came to his senses and he realized i have made an absolutely terrible and foolish mistake nevertheless you know I, I am going to return he he hit rock bottom he came to repentance when he came to repentance pride wasn't standing in the way of him coming back to be with his family Certainly he would have had to, as the old saying goes, eat crow when he returned. And yet, he's prepared to return to his father in verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he came to that point. Verse 20, he arose, came to his father, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, verse 21, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Notice that his dad didn't, when he saw him afar off, Tell him, I told you so. (laughs) I told you it would come to this. I told you you would make these mistakes and here you are. I hope you've thought about it. No. He ran out. He hugged him. He was overjoyed to see him. You know, the son asked that he could be like one of the hired hands he wanted to be with the family he recognized that he had squandered his portion it was gone now that was done and yet the the father ensures that he is is treated as a member of the family now let's notice in contrast the the older Brother verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So the older son was a hard worker. He was a hard worker. He was someone who, who tended the, the family business. He followed the instructions of his, his father. He hadn't gone and make, you know, wasted his portion. And he comes in and he, as he returns from the field, he hears this party. So he called one of the servants and asked, what's the meaning of this? Verse 27, and he said, your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Verse 28, and he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father went out and pleaded with him. You know, he was so mad at his brother. And at this point, he was rather upset with his dad. And he wasn't even going to go in where the merrymaking was. So his dad came out to him to help him to see it in the right perspective. Verse 29. He tells his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, I never transgressed your commandment at any time. Now, perhaps that is a bit of an exaggeration, <laughs> but nonetheless, we get the picture here 's a man who who did try to do everything that his father told him he tried to please his father, and he 's got this burden, this chip on his shoulder, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. You know here you 've killed a fatted calf, and you never gave me an old goat. in his way of thinking this is so unfair and doesn't it sound like one uh, one sibling to another this is unfair and yet that's the uh, the state of his attitude verse 30 as soon as this your son this son of yours came who has devoured you're living with harlots. So now he wants to, to bring up the mistakes that his, his other brother must have made. You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It is right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost, and is found. Notice the, the two very different attitudes. You know, the the father tells us, the older son, everything I have is yours. The, the inheritance had already been divided. You know, here he's received the younger son and is elated and overjoyed that his son is back. But as his, his, my father used to tell me, old sins cast long shadows. You know, the mistakes that we make There is a physical penalty and a spiritual penalty. Christ's sacrifice pays the spiritual penalty. We can repent and be forgiven. But there are physical consequences that come with the mistakes that we make. And those consequences sometimes are born for a lifetime. The older son had real trouble accepting back. His brother. He wanted to describe it as your son. This son of yours. It was his brother. And yet, we see the the attitude that pictures the attitude of our perfect father in heaven towards us. When we return to him. As we think about this story, we want to make sure that we don't act like the older son and reluctant to let someone move past their mistakes. You know how easy it is to put someone in a box. And then as time goes on, we always think of them as, Oh yeah, that's so and so, he did such and such. And somehow we can keep in our mind from ever really forgiving them or from ever really letting them live past a mistake that they've made. Aren't we glad that our Father in heaven doesn't do that with us? Where would we be? We wouldn't be here. We understand that. We need to make sure that we have, we are developing the attitude. Here, that this father has towards his younger son. That's the way our father works and treats us. You know, God's Word warns us about the consequences that come from disobedience. And yet, sometimes we persist. But when we repent, our Father is prepared and does. When we repent, forgive us. And we need to have that same approach in our dealings and our actions with others. And yet that can at times be difficult. We live in a society that does not understand God's Word. The society blinded by Satan the devil, the God of this world. And the attitudes in the society around it rub off. If you walk through a smoky room, when you come out on the other side, there is the smell of smoke. And it has clung to your clothing. And even though you didn't smoke... It has stuck with you. Living in the society that we live in, there is an effect. And we kid ourselves if we think that we're somehow immune. It does rub off. And as we constantly read and reread God's Word and meditate on it and pray to Him, We can overcome the the temptations, our carnal nature, the pulls of society. But there is a pagan doctrine that is very popular in society. And that is the Catholic doctrine of venial and mortal sin. Now, whether we think of it as venial and mortal... Or not, there is a tendency to fall into the same general approach. Venial sin, the misdemeanors, are defined as pardonable, meriting temporary, not eternal punishment. Now, that's a concept that's not found in Scripture. And then there is the other class of sin, the felonies, mortal sins. These are defined as sins violating human, natural, or divine law. Now, man has divided sins into two categories. The really serious ones and the ones that are not so bad. They merit temporary punishment. an Interesting, but false concept. You know, we can look at that and, and we recognize that is so wrong. It's not biblical. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. You see, although we may recognize and, and, and do recognize that that is wrong, just like walking through a smoky room, the smoke sticks. It's easy for this concept To influence our approach and our thinking. Romans chapter 3. We read in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let's go on over To Romans chapter six. In Romans chapter six, verse twenty three, very familiar scripture. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. Is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. That puts all of us in the same boat, puts all of us in the same position. You see, we didn't read about two categories of sin the really serious ones and the ones that are okay. We read that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we read of the penalty. We didn't read about a temporary penalty and and, and something else. No, we read that the wages, the just reward, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. It's not something we can earn by somehow just making the, the smaller, less important mistakes. It is a gift made possible through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. This idea that there are somehow two categories of sin, we recognize that that's false. And yet, there's a difference between knowing and understanding. We all know this. But when we really understand it, it affects the way we deal and relate to others. How hard is it at times to let someone's previous mistakes stay where they belong in the past? You know, it's easy to kind of always remember, yeah, that's so and so, he did such and such that somehow they, they have done something that we're going to never really be able to, to move past. And yet, we see clearly that is not a godly concept. In Romans chapter 6, let's notice verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. There are only two ways of life. The way that leads to death or the way that leads to life. And certainly we're here because we are trying to walk on the way that leads to life. To leave behind The other road. And when we think about that and we examine ourselves, we understand certain of the implications that that are contained there. Implications that kind of go against the grain in society. We have these terms. The white lie. Well, what is a white lie? Does the Scripture say that... uh, white liars shall inherit the kingdom of God, but but folks who tell the other kind of lie won't? No. There's just lies. There's truth and there's untruth. And there's no in between. And yet, in society, there's this concept that, well, some things are okay. You know, if no one gets hurt, or if no one finds out, if no one finds out, that's somehow okay. You know, I, I saw something on the Internet the other day where a fellow was asking for advice. And he was describing, he, he wanted to do what was in essence a terrible thing. And he was justifying it by saying that no one would know. And so he, he wanted to know what was, were other people's thoughts. Would that be okay? Okay. It's amazing to to read through and see the words. If no one will know, make sure no one will find out, but it's okay. I would do it. You know that that's that's not a godly concept. You know, another way that things are rationalized sometimes is that the ends justify the means. Again, we read earlier, verse 16, there are only two ways. There's not an in-between. There are only two ways. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, there are only two ways leading to two very different outcomes. And we can't split the difference. We must be wholehearted in our approach. Now, as this pertains to self-examination, we recognize that we have to overcome everything. We can't allow that there are certain things that aren't so bad, and we'll work on this later. You know, if we make that rationalization, we know that's not the way it works. You know, perhaps you've heard the expression, well, God understands. Yes, He does. And sometimes what He may understand <laughs> may be very different from what the way we're kidding ourselves. You know, God does understand. And so... As we examine ourselves, we must realize that, you know, even the little areas don't belong. We must work diligently to overcome them. And as pertaining others, you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all in need of Christ's sacrifice. Not some more so than others. We all are in need of Christ's sacrifice. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, let's notice verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? That's not talking about somebody else's heart, that's talking about each of us. And when we think about that, we realize what we're being told, how easy it is to rationalize and to excuse our own actions, to make excuses for various areas in our life where we're perhaps not doing things in the way we really know we should. You know, the the last sentence in the verse is a rhetorical question. Who can know it? The truth is that without God's Holy Spirit, we can't even know our own heart. That without God's help to show us what's inside of us, as we look at ourselves, we won't even see things clearly. God working with us, God's Spirit helping us, will help us see past the deceit. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. It is so easy to have a false sense of confidence about where we are in our relationship with God. A false sense of confidence in terms of what we have already overcome. And yet the fact is that there are many things that we will work the, our entire lives On overcoming. We will make progress. God expects us to make progress. But there are certain things that we will have to be on guard for. That we won't be able to just say, Okay, I have checked that off. I have mastered controlling the tongue. Or I have mastered whatever. In Matthew chapter 7. We read in verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite first Remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. How easy is it to see someone else doing something and in our minds instantly we suddenly know what their problems are. And we can kind of congratulate ourselves that I don't have that problem or I've overcome that. And yet what we're being told here is that perhaps we should take another look. That we should really consider carefully. The things that that we're seeing in others, do they exist in our own lives? Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. It is all too easy to think that we, to delude ourselves into thinking that we do see something else very clearly. And yet not really giving the full consideration to that area in our own lives. In Second Samuel chapter 12, we read the account of Nathan coming in to correct David for David's sin. The sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. Chapter 12 and verse 1 of Second Samuel. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. And so this this contrast is being painted about this one man who was so wealthy and had so many, and this other fellow had just this one little lamb, and it was like a member of the family. Verse 4, And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Notice David's reaction. David's anger, verse 5, was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die. (coughs) As David heard this story, it was crystal clear the sin that the rich man had. You know, the rich man's sin was there. But the thing that is ironic is that David was guilty of the same thing that he was so quick to identify and spot in somebody else. You know, here was something that David had done over the course a mistake and he had not repented and months had gone by. And here he hears this story and he's so quick to identify, okay, this this fellow really has messed up. Nathan has to tell him, you know, David, you are that man. You know, suddenly the light bulb went off and he understood. You know, what we just read in Matthew chapter 7. This is an example of that passage in action. It's so easy to look at someone else and to conclude, oh yes, I can see that so clearly. And yet, not to really consider that area in our own lives. You know, the heart is deceitful above all things. As God looks at us, He's not blind to our flaws. Sometimes we can almost have the approach that I've got to teach this guy because if I don't, who will? (laughs) Well, we have a Father in heaven and it's His job. One that He takes very seriously. One that He is very good at. And one that we can all be very thankful that he is very patient in going about. It's easier to appreciate patience when we are the recipient. And yet really appreciating it involves other aspects of it as well. As we understand that God sees those flaws, those imperfections, That can keep us, if left in place, can keep us from achieving the potential that He has in mind for us. God sees those. He also sees the potential within us. The reason that we were created for fellowship with Him as members of His family. What an awesome calling. And purpose in life. He sees both. And he works with us patiently. And over time to help us overcome and root out those flaws. Those flaws that could keep us from achieving our potential. As we think about that. It should affect the way we deal and relate. With others. You know, as we look and relate to others, do we do so seeing future members of God's family? People who will be with God's help in His family? We should. You know, as we see that in ourselves, it helps us to realize, I've got one shot at this. We don't have a second bite at the apple. This is our opportunity. And we must go about it with the utmost zeal. And recognizing in that in others lie the same potential that God sees for us to be part of his family. And that with his help, we can all be there together. And God is working with each one of us. Consider for a moment, what lesson, what lesson is God trying to teach me right now? You know, A school teacher has a lesson plan and they have objectives for certain skills that they want the students to master, certain things that they want them to understand by the end of the course. God has a lesson plan for each one of us. What is he working on for you and for me right now? We should give thought to what God is trying to teach each of us at this time.